Amen. If you could open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, I am grateful to be able to continue our study. First John chapter 4, if you recalled last time we were in First John, beginning chapter 4, we were talking about false teachers. We were talking about the spirit of Antichrist. We were talking about confessing the true Christ, and that if we confess the true Christ and believe in him, that we truly belong to him. And so it is now that John transitions in verses 7 to 14 to talk head-on about Christian love. That's the topic for this morning, Christian love. What we're going to see today is that it is impossible to overestimate love in the Christian life. And that because God is the essence of love, our love for one another is tied to our love of God. I'll say that again, because this is the thesis statement of the whole sermon. Because God is the essence of love, our love for one another is tied to our love of God. I believe that's what John is going to be teaching us this morning by the Spirit. This sermon is going to be broken down into three headings. Number one, the poem of love, in verses 7 through 10. The poem of love. Secondly, we'll look at the power of love, verse 11 through 12. And lastly, we will look at the proof of love, verses 13 through 14. So now that you have your finger on 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, if you're able, read with me. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testify 
that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask that you help us now in the reading, teaching, hearing of your word. We recognize, Lord, that this is a blessing that you have spoken to us, even in this place at this time. Use it for the good of your people. Use it for your glory, even through a weak vessel like I. Oh, Lord, by your spirit, these things are accomplished. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start today by asking a question. Why do people sing? Why do they sing? One mental health specialist suggested it's because singing makes you feel ecstatic. Singing is known to release that fills you with intense feelings and pleasure. Singing releases oxytocin, which is known to reduce symptoms of stress and anxiety. And singing gives your mental faculties a boost. Now, all these things may be true, but I would argue there is more to the story. Indeed, there is more to the biblical story of why people sing. Why do we sing? Why did we sing this morning? Whether it's Adam singing in Genesis chapter 2, 23, after God gave him Eve to be his wife, whether it's Hannah singing in 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10, after she gave birth to who would become the prophet Samuel, or the entire book of Psalms. Singing biblically is often a response to what God has done, is doing, or what he has promised to do. It's so much more than some therapeutic exercise to make us feel better. I believe this is clearly seen in the opening of Mary's song, recorded in Luke chapter 1, known as the Magnificat, where she sings, beginning in verse 46, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the humble state of his bondslave. For, behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Yes, brothers and sisters, songs are poems, and the faithful can't help but sing these poems of love about our Savior. And that is exactly what the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, has prepared for us this morning. So let us look at our first heading, the poem of love, verses 7 through 10. The poem of love. Love is the natural response of all those who have been made partakers of the divine nature. Love is the natural response of all those who have been made partakers of the divine nature. John says in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. 
And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Apostle John, having touched upon the topic of love before, now enters headlong into an exhortation to love in what is known as one of the most well-known set of verses on the topic of love throughout all of Scripture. Some believe this exhortation to love in verses 7 through 10 is designed by the Apostle as poetry. A song of faith, if you will. In fact, the Nestle Allen Greek New Testament endorses, I believe, this conclusion by indenting these verses in their base Greek text. And it is consistent with the Apostle John's style in this epistle because he did something similar in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, if you recall. 2.12 I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I, am I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is believed to be another poetic measure of the Apostle John in this epistle. And here again in verses 7 through 10, I believe that we see another poetic endorsement, another song of faith. It's easy to see how these verses and the theological truths which they contain in verses 7 through 10 could be understood as a song of praise, wonder, and excitement. So let us look a little bit closer at what the mechanics are in verses 7 through 10. John begins with his favorite phrase in this epistle, Beloved. We talked about last time that this means agape toy. This is beloved my loved ones, my little ones. This is an endearing term again as John is the shepherd of the people in Asia Minor, as we believe in Ephesus, and he's calling them this endearing term again, and it's filled with doctrine that they are his supernatural brothers and sisters in Christ, but it's also filled with an exhortation to love. The very word we would expect him to begin a poetic song of love. Agape toy, brethren, beloved, little ones. And then he goes on to give the exhortation plainly. Let us love one another. Now it's easy to look at this verse and to think John is speaking generally and it is true that we should love all image bearers of God, should we not? We should love all of our neighbors. But I believe that John is specifically saying for Christians to love other Christians. This is not a general charge to love our neighbors, but a peculiar love to love the faithful, those who are in God's house with you. And I believe John is going to be unpacking this. He already has to a degree in his epistle. Let us love one another. This is the natural disposition 
of the one who is in Christ. Because he says next, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. You see, this is what we've been saying from the beginning of this epistle, is that there's a supernatural love that we have because we're in Christ. And when John says, everyone who loves is born of God, we may conclude, well, my unbelieving parents love. My unbelieving co-workers love. So I guess everybody is born again and has been born of God. That's what John is saying, is it not? Everyone who loves is born of God. But brothers and sisters, again, the context is John is saying that everyone who loves in the covenant community, that loves brother and sister in Christ, is born of God. That that is a token, a sign that he has given you a new heart, that he has given you a new nature. Everyone who loves this way is born of God. And he says, and knows God. So much we've said so far about this idea of knowing. Gnoski is the Greek word for knows. This knowledge is an experiential knowledge, not simply a head knowledge. It's personal and it's firsthand. We recall this word being used again in Matthew 7.23, where Jesus will say to those on his left that are destined for eternal fire, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. This is the type of knowing that John is talking about. This personal, experiential knowledge. And Jesus is saying this to the unregenerate, to the wicked, to the haters of God. Depart from me. I never knew you. Again, we talked about Mary and her at Magnificat. She says this in Luke 1.34 about the angel Gabriel delivering her the message that she would be the one to bring the Messiah into the world, that she was pregnant. And she says, how could this be? I have not known a man. Same Greek word. What's behind that? Not a head knowledge, but in this case, an intimate knowledge. I have not known a man to bring forth a child into this world. This is not according to the natural events of this world. And so when John says, everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, I don't want you to hear John saying that you know him intellectually. What John is saying is that everyone who loves the brothers and sisters in the new covenant know God personally they know God experientially. And because of that, they confess with their mouths the true God, not an idol that resembles the true God, but is ultimately a figment of their imagination. And that's what John was talking about in the verses that immediately preceded verse 7. Being able to test the spirits, whether they are from God based upon the confession of Jesus Christ. But all this idea about knowing reminds us again, and we want to keep coming back to it because I believe it's a foundational truth that John is building upon, is the promise in Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant. Turn with me, if you're able, to Jeremiah 31. We can't read it enough because it gives us the context 
for the New Testament. It gives us the context for us as a community of the faithful in the New Covenant. Jeremiah 31. In verse 31 of Jeremiah 31, this is what the Lord says by way of prophecy. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Let's stop right there. In our, in our providential Old and New Testament readings this morning, we saw the Mosaic Covenant. We saw the threatenings of breaking the Mosaic Covenant. And yet we saw promises that God would restore those who come to him in faith and repentance. And we said that it's because the promise of the new covenant was in the old covenant. Brothers and sisters, here's Jeremiah who's giving us an old covenant document. Jeremiah is in the Mosaic covenant. He's a child of Israel. And he's prophesying that God will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. We've seen that language in the Old Covenant, but it's a promise of the New Covenant. And here it is explicitly mentioned by Jeremiah that this is a New Covenant blessing. John has said over and over again that the one who says they, has, they have no sin does not know God and makes God a liar. And that we are to love God by obeying him and his commandments. And what does Jeremiah prophesy about the New Covenant? That God is going to put that law, those ten words, found in the Mosaic Covenant, on those rock slabs, on your heart. And that's why you will obey. And it will be this way for everybody in the New Covenant. Everyone who's in the New Covenant has a heart of flesh with these words written on them. Verse 34, They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. This was the, this was the clarion cry in the Old Covenant. To everyone, know the Lord. We're in this Mosaic Covenant, but you still must know the Lord. Come know him. Why? Because you could be in the Mosaic Covenant and not be saved. You could be in the Mosaic Covenant and not truly be a child of God. You could be a child of Abraham according to the flesh, but not a child of Abraham according to the Spirit. But not so in the New Covenant. Why? No one will say again in the New Covenant, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sins. I will remember no more. This is covenant theology. This is how critical covenant theology, critical covenant theology is, lest we mingle the law and the gospel and not be able to rightly understand the difference between the two. And what God has done in the new covenant as it is compared to the old. 
And so John is saying, everyone who knows God loves. Knowing God displays itself in love. Love evidences that we are born of God. In the words of another John, John Calvin, quote, true knowledge of God necessarily produces love in us. True knowledge of God necessarily produces love in us. The critique of cold Calvinism is an oxymoron. From the lips of John Calvin, true Calvinism is warm Christianity. Because all who know God personally and experientially love. Why? Because God is love. His very nature is love. One theologian makes a good illustration on this point. He says, quote, A navigator depends on a compass to help him determine his course. But why a compass? Because it shows him his directions. And why does the compass point north? Because it responds to the magnetic field that is part of the earth's makeup. It is responsive to the nature of the earth. And then he goes on to say, so it is with Christian love. You see, like a compass pointing north because it is calibrated to the nature of earth. Us, brothers and sisters, in Christ, who have been given new hearts, have a heart that is calibrated to love because God's nature is love. And so it is with everybody who knows God. But the Apostle John is also, in these words, sending a sharp rebuke to the false teachers who had crept into the church and those antichrists who have gone out of the church. Why? Because they taught of a secret knowledge, a hidden knowledge that wasn't contained in the apostles' teachings. They taught of a different ethic. These are the very things that the apostle has been warning us about from the very beginning. They would later become known as Gnostics. How ironic is that? The word gnosis means knowledge. Gnostics means the knowledgeable ones. And what John is saying is that, brothers and sisters, if you know God, if you love, you know God. That's a sharp rebuke to these Gnostic teachers who were teaching of a different Christ, of a different gospel, of a different ethic, of a secret knowledge. In this one verse, the apostle shows that not only do true believers know God, have a true knowledge, but in fact, if you recall what he said in chapter 2, 26 through 27, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. These are those false teachers, those antichrists who have gone out from among them. But he says, as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things. You see, what John is doing here is giving a level playing field for all those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ and you know him personally and experientially, you have no need that anyone should teach you. 
not in the extreme sense that I shouldn't even be up here teaching you and that Christ hasn't gifted pastors and teachers to teach the flock, but that you have someone inside of you, an anointing, the Holy Spirit, who teaches you of all things. Brothers and sisters, I rejoice that while I'm sitting here talking to you, there's a spy on the inside, and his name is the Holy Spirit, and he's the one who's teaching you while I'm teaching you, and is correcting the things that are coming out of my mouth so that you believe what is true and disregard what is false. The reason you have the Holy Spirit, that anointing, according to 1 John 2, 26 through 27, is because you know God personally and experientially, and he's given you his spirit. What a help that we have. But as we noted last time, John is now repeating themes he's previously introduced. Everything he said up to this point, all the warnings he has given, have circled around the danger of those who are trying to lead the faithful astray. John is giving his faithful children and us confidence now that we can recognize those false brethren in the church who are seeking to do us harm if we examine what they say about Christ. That's what he said previously. Who he is, who they are as teachers, what sin is, and how we should live as followers of Christ and children who have been adopted by God. And this God who has adopted us doesn't just love. He's not just a loving God. As we've said, as John has said, he is love. He is love. But like any good teacher, the Apostle John transitions into this love poem to give us an illustration of this truth. Look at verse 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What an attack this is on the false doctrine that God chooses those who choose him first. This is what Rome teaches. We discussed Rome last week as it concerns the one who was to come, the Antichrist. They believe that God gives a preserving faith to those who he saw would choose him. No, that is not what John is saying. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, his only begotten son, to be the propitiation for our sins. We've seen this big word propitiation show up before. What it means is that God's God's eyes, in the sense of his favor, are turned away from us. He's against us. And through the life-giving sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, his favor is now upon us. It's for us. It's a propitiation. It's toward us. Because our sins separated us from God. But through faith in Jesus, our sins no longer separate us from him. He is our propitiation. What type of love is this? The, the, the words that we can give to describe it. First, it's a wise love. How is it wise? God sent. God sent. This is God's doing. We didn't save ourselves. 
God sent. The Greek philosophers, knowing the scriptures, discussed amongst themselves, this God, he may, be, he may be able to forgive sins, but it is beyond us how he could ever do that. Because if God forgives our sins, he's unjust. Because God has to be just. So it seemed to the philosophers that this God, who's revealed by natural revelation, was in a predicament if he was going to ever try to forgive sins. But our God is wise. And he had a way of salvation. A way that he promised all the way back in the garden when he said to the woman and the man, but the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And by that one promise, our first parents, Adam and Eve, had a door of salvation open to them and they could be saved. And so it is developed through further steps throughout the Old Testament. This is the promise, brothers and sisters, that was contained in the, in the covenants that preceded the new covenant. But it's not just a wise love. It's a benevolent love. Benevolent love. So that we might live through him. The Lord didn't need to save us. The Lord's happiness isn't depending upon us or anything in his creation. He is in permanent, perpetual felicity. And the words in scripture that speak of him being saddened or grieved is language to stoop to our level so he can communicate with us. It's not reflective of the divine nature. And so he didn't need to save us. And so this love is a benevolent love that rescued us. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. It's clear. It's a clear love. John says, in this is love. The presupposition is, you can see it. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. God spoke in shadows in dark sayings in the Old Covenant. But the gospel has always been clear. Why? Because he desires repentance and faith and salvation. And it's not just wise, benevolent, and clear. It's unconditional. I let the cat out of the bag early. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Brothers and sisters, those here who are outside of Christ, take comfort in that. It's not because of our works. It's not because of anything good in us that God sees that he decides to bestow his love. But he has commanded all men to repent and to believe. And in that command is mercy, a way of salvation for all who will believe. It's not just wise. It's not just benevolent. It's not just clear. It's not just unconditional. But this love is extravagant. God didn't just find a sacrificial substitute that would suffice. God didn't just plan that another human would be born 
that would be the sacrifice and that by some miraculous providential care, this simply human man would live a perfect life, atone for our sins. No, he chose to send his only begotten son. The son who shares the same divine nature. The son who is God over all. The son who is the one true God, along with the Father and the Spirit. This is an extravagant love that he sent. And because of all these things, it's a humbling, sacrificial, and costly love. Again, not that it costs the Father emotionally. How many sermons have I heard that they say the Father grieved when he sent his Son because of what his Son went through, and that in the nature of the Godhead there was a grieving and a hostility and a sorrow? That is not the God we worship. The God that we worship is unchanging. Brothers and sisters, it did grieve the Son in his humanity. It did grieve the Son and torment him in his flesh. In the garden, when he said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. The Son knew that it was for that purpose he had come into the world. Was he having second thoughts? Why did he want that cup to pass? Why did he pray so fervently? Why was his spirit distressed? Because if he didn't ask for that cup to pass from him, our Lord would have been sinning. Why? Because he knew that on that cross, he was going to become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God through him. And it was right for the son to ask for that cup to pass, knowing what the cross meant. Oh, the depths of the sorrow and distress and misery of our Lord and our Savior in the flesh. He's the example that Scripture gives to us as it concerns spiritual disciplines and self-denial what we're going to be studying, what we are, what the men have already studied in our small groups. He's the example. We are to look to him. Not some caricature of the father grieving in heaven because of his son. Rather, what we're given about the father's attitude is that it pleased the father to crush him. That's what we're told. And that's because the Son became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. That is what the philosophers could not grapple with. That is what was beyond finding out. What a wise, benevolent, clear, unconditional, extravagant, humbling, sacrificial, costly gospel that we have. And this brings us right to what John says. 
Next in verse 11. Put your finger there. This is the power of love. Love is the natural response of all those who have experienced the power of God's love. He says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, if God did everything I just said, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. The apostle again is sharing with us the imperative after the indicative. If God so loved us, that's the indicative, then what ought we to do? We also ought to love each other. That's the imperative. So many sermons are all indicatives. This is what God has done. This is what God has done. This is what God has done. Amen. They don't ever talk about what we should do in light of that. Other sermons are all what we should do, all what we should do, all what we should do. That's good, but we do in light of what he's done. The Apostle John is giving us the indicative and the imperative. But what does this love for one another look like? Well, the Apostle has already told us in the previous chapters. Flip back if you have your Bibles open to chapter 3 starting in verse 16. He says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. That's an indicative. This is what he did. That's how we know love. Sounds similar to what he's already said in chapter 4. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's the imperative. In light of what he's done, this is what we should do. Now, let's get practical. What does that mean? Am I just to lay down my life physically? And if, if, I, if I'm never called to lay down my life physically, I guess that's the extent of the love that I'm supposed to show to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, thankfully, because we have a desire to love one another, the Holy Spirit gives us a practical example. Verse 17, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We paralleled this before with James saying, let us not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And this is what John is saying too. In another word, what John could say is, brothers and sisters, let's not just focus on the indicatives. Let us also focus on the imperatives. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. But why does he then say, no one has seen God at any time? Isn't that strange? Why would the apostle trans seemingly transition in verse 12 away from that idea into an idea that no one has ever seen God at any time? John says something similar in, John, in his gospel. In chapter 118, where he says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. I believe there's a different design in the Gospel of John than what is his design here in the epistle. In the Gospel, what John is saying is, No one has ever seen the Father. Think about that. How many times was God seen in the Old Testament? Lots. 
God was seen throughout the Old Testament. We see it a lot in the angel of the Lord, do we not? But John then says, no one has ever seen God at any time. Well, how could that be? Because there's a plurality of persons in the Godhead. But John is not saying that no one has not ever seen Jesus. In fact, what did he say previously in the context of chapter 4? If anyone confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, has been seen. So here, I believe that he's offering a type of argument. And it's based upon the context of verse 11, which came before. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here's the argument. If God, who is invisible, loves you, then you will love his people who are visible. Think about this. Anybody who says that they love God, who they have not seen, and yet say they love and yet do not love his people who they have seen. Is that a love from God? If anyone says they love the invisible God and yet hate his visible children, that was the language of 1 John, you may know that one is not from God, but is rather a liar. This is what I believe John is saying. This is why I think he says no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another... God abides in us. It's all part of his argument. But then he goes on to say, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. His love is perfected in us. It's not that God's love with which he loves those that he has adopted has been perfected. Again, we've already identified God is perfect. We can't say that God's love is perfected as if his love moves from a state of non-perfection to perfection. Again, that's not the God we worship. Our God is unchangeable. It's not that our love in this life is perfected as if we can then ascend to some form of sinless living. John's already argued against that. Anyone who says they have no sin makes God a liar. But rather, I believe what is being spoken of is that our love in eternity, in heaven, and one day on the new earth will be a perfected love. It is called his love on account that God is the object and the author of it. The love that is within you as a Christian is a love that comes from God. And it is a love that is first directed to him and then to others. He is the object and the author of it. Our love for each other now is genuine and it is shown to be from God and we have the promise now that we will love God with a perfect love. Oh, how I long for that day. We prayed for that day in our corporate prayer, that day when his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. This is similar to what John said in Chapter 2, verse 5, when he says, But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. And lastly, we come to the proof of love. The proof of love. 
Love is confirmed to us by what God has given to us, namely the Son and the Spirit. How much we've talked so far in this sermon about this. But this, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his Spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Apostle now is connecting the supernatural work of the Spirit and power of God wrought in his children to supply our assurance of salvation. It is only by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and the new nature that has been granted to us that we can love one another and bear fruit. John says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. What the apostle is teaching us is that the Holy Spirit is the deposit of our salvation. And because of this, we can rest assured that we have been adopted. And John follows up with the evidentiary mark that he and the other apostles have seen and testify that indeed Jesus is the Messiah. He has come in the flesh and that he truly is the Savior of the world. And what John says here, other, other apostles have taught. This is an apostolic message. I would recall you back to Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 that Pastor Perkins is teaching us out of. And John, in that upper room, remembers when Jesus said this before the cross. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Oh, how I want this to be a reality in my life. How I know you want it to be a reality in your life. But how much we fall short and how much we don't do the things that we would like to do but rather do the things that we don't want to do. But in that same upper room, listen to this, brothers and sisters. This is the end. In that same upper room where Jesus gave that imperative to love one another, and he washed their dirty feet, it says that he loved them, the apostles, until the very end. That is the love that is imputed to us. It's his love, his, his law keeping, and him obeying the law perfectly and loving the Lord thy God with all his heart, his soul, his mind, and his strength that is given to your account. Rejoice in that. How much we feel downtrodden. I'm not doing enough. I'm not loving enough. I'm listening to this sermon and this is not me. At least not all the time. It was Jesus all the time. And he has given us that record, that righteousness. Rejoice, brothers and sisters. I trust that you've seen that it's impossible to overestimate love in the Christian life. As Jesus foretold, it is our love one for another that will be the sign to all that we are his disciples. But what's more, it has been granted to be the natural direction of the heart of all those whom he has set his love upon. The virtue that we all desire, especially in our weakness, 
Christian love flowing from the source, the fountain of love, God himself is what is promised, what identified, and what endures in this life and the life to come. For all who will confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead will be saved. And it is he who will love you until the end. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, wrote, Before we quit, forsake this clay, or leave this dark abode, the wings of love bear us away to see our smiling God. This is the grace that lives and sings when faith and hope shall cease. Tis this shall strike our joyful strings in the sweet realms of bliss. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the Apostle John and your spirit who inspired him. We thank you that you have taught us about love. Not only why we should love, but how we should love. Thank you for the assurance that you've given in all those here who recognize the love that you have wrought in their hearts, even if it's the size of a mustard seed. This is only because they know you and you know them. Lord, grant us grace to love in a greater measure, to deny ourselves daily, to take up our crosses, to follow after your son, Jesus Christ, who is our example. Let the whole world see that we are his disciples by the love that we have one for another. All praise and glory and honor be to you, Father, and to your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we all say, Amen.